listening to the Sojourn Montrose Sermon Podcast. To get connected at Sojourn Montrose, visit our website, sojournmontrose.org. Well, good morning. Peace be with you. My name is Reed. I am one of the pastors here at Sojourn Montrose. It's my joy to welcome you all to our congregation this morning as we gather to worship and hear the word of the Lord together. Um, just want to reiterate the welcome that Cole gave you at the very beginning. We would love to connect with you, especially if you're new. Um, and the best way to do that is just meet us over at the map at the conclusion of the gathering. And we'd love to show you kind of where our communities are gathering throughout the week in the neighborhood of Montrose. And, and then two additional things. One, uh, as he reminded you, we have a prayer gathering this week. So 7.30 on Wednesday, we'll be gathering right here to pray with one another. All of our parishes will gather to pray with one another. So I want to invite you to that and encourage you to come um, gather with brothers and sisters in prayer. And I think even after this morning's sermon, maybe you'll see that we need that to bolster our faith and resist our hardening hearts. Um, and then two, we celebrate 10 years of ministry um, this week on Friday. We'll, we'll turn 10 as a church. And so we are having a birthday party on Saturday at Sojourn Heights. So where we had that all Sojourn Sunday just a few weeks ago, um, that's where our birthday party will be Saturday. It's kind of like a fall festival. We'll have a bounce house and some yard games and free tacos and drinks and um, music and things like that. So just want to encourage you to come um, celebrate with us 10 years and really remember what the Lord has done in his faithfulness over this time. Um, all that said, we are continuing a sermon series in Hebrews where we're looking at how Jesus is greater than um, many things. The angels last week, this week we're looking at the Old Testament figure Moses. Let me pray for our time and we'll jump right into the text and, and work through it this morning. Lord, we invite you to be um, our rest this morning. We invite you um, to pour out your grace in a greater measure through the work of Jesus. So I pray that we would gaze upon the glory of your gospel um, as members of your house. And that this morning through prayer, um, singing, and the communion table, the sacrament, and the sermon, the not only my words, feeble as they might be, but also, but mainly your word in Hebrews, would it be a balm, a challenge, a corrective, maybe a grace, as we know it is. Um, you invite us to hear your voice today, in fact, and so we listen. Um, help us, Lord. We ask, in your name we pray, amen. Well, as you heard from Cole last week, all throughout the letter to the Hebrews, um, there's just been evidence and evidence and evidence mounting that Jesus is better than all of these other things, particularly Old Testament systems and heroes. Um, and that's because Hebrews is largely written to an audience made up of Jewish Christians. These are Jews who, because they spent time hearing directly from Jesus, or they've heard from the apostles directly after Jesus' resurrection and ascension about who Jesus is and how he's fulfilled all the Old Testament law and covenant and prophecy, um, they have converted and become Christians. And um, I say that with the asterisks that they probably didn't characterize this as a conversion. Um, Jewish Christians saw Jesus as a continuation and fulfillment of Judaism. So they didn't think, oh, well, I've been Jewish, but now I'm going to be Christian. They thought Jesus is the Messiah. He's the promised one. 
to fulfill the entire Jewish system. So they saw Jesus as a continuation of their belief, not a new belief, really. I mean, there was certainly new aspects of belief as they're teaching, well, Jesus is the final sacrifice, and he's given himself as a priestly and kingly sacrifice for his people. And so we don't have to do these things that we used to do anymore because Jesus has fulfilled things. Like, there are certainly new aspects of being a Christian for these Jewish Christians, um, but they saw Jesus as this continuation of their belief and that true, the true nation of Israel, the true Jews would, be, would just follow Jesus. But, but now, based on the context of the letter of Hebrews, it turns out, or at least it seems strongly, that some of these Jewish Christians are reverting back to Judaism. They're going back from Christianity and they are going back to the temple system, back to offering priestly sacrifices for sin and attempting to follow the law in order to be saved. And so the context of the letter is this, why would anybody depart from this Jesus and the system that this Jesus has inaugurated, mainly salvation by grace through faith, back to this older way of Judaism and the old covenant, which was administered through the law and priestly sacrifice? Why go back to that when Jesus has fulfilled the law and um, satisfied the priestly sacrifice that God requires on behalf of sin? Like, why go back to the old way of doing that when those things were just a shadow of what Jesus would come and do? And so that's the argument that's mounting throughout the letter. And this is where we pick up really smack dab in the middle of a grander and complete argument in the sermon to the Hebrews is how the letter really reads about Christianity's superiority to Judaism, and really it becomes an appeal to Christianity's superiority over everything the world has to offer, which is, brings me into this question, what does this have to do with us in 2023? Because if I were to guess, you did not convert from Judaism to Christianity. Maybe you did. I don't want to speak for everybody. But my guess is, if you're in the room, you might not have converted from Judaism to Christianity. So most Christians in the room aren't facing a temptation to return to the temple system of Judaism. We're not tempted to return to the priestly system of sacrifice and law keeping. But I think Christians in the room, we still face a temptation to return all the same. Um, it just has a different label. And I'm going to argue this morning that deconstruction is the most popular word or characterization of the abandonment of Christ by Christians today. And so there's not a single definition. Maybe you haven't heard that word. Deconstruction is a kind of a new term in evangelicalism that's describing um, a myriad of things, right? So it's like this bucket term that explains multiple phenomena. And so I'm going to address some of that. Some individuals say that they are deconstructing. And what they mean when they use that word and say that word is that they are in a real good faith attempt examining the word of God and going to their community into pastors and trusted friends and family members and believers to strip away unhelpful, legalistic, sometimes abusive notions of Christianity. And they're trying to recapture what God's word truly says. And this type of deconstruction, I'm going to argue, is, is really noble. Um, it's difficult work. And when true believers guided by the Holy Spirit set out to deepen their faith by removing untrue aspects of Christianity and investigating what is true about the God of the Bible that we know in Jesus, like we as a community can come alongside them. We can cheer them on. We can walk with them. We can pray with them. We can encourage them. Right, so 
if that's how you're defining deconstruction, maybe for your own journey even, like we want to come alongside you. We don't want to deter that. But there's another definition of deconstruction that gets used a ton in the modern age. And it's when true, um, well, and it's this, and this is my experience as a pastor. I, I actually see this quite a lot. It's deconstruction that's used to describe this process of turning and leaving true Christianity found in the Bible, turning from that towards typically a worldly spirituality that abandons the saving doctrines of Christianity. Typically, it's an abandonment of Christ as God or Christ as resurrected. It typically ends in Jesus being a teacher, a good teacher, but not one who is God himself, not a priestly sacrifice, right? Not a king, not a prophet, not God. So in my passage uh, this morning in Hebrews 3, I, I think the author of Hebrews calls this type of deconstruction, hardening your heart, hardening your heart. And th these people are the people who end up leaving the faith entirely. They leave our churches, not for a new church or not because they've moved or, or whatever, but they leave because they have decided under a label called deconstruction that honestly, they just don't believe that Jesus is God. They don't believe Jesus is the savior anymore. And, and this morning, I'll use that term uh, deconstruction a few times, and this is what I'm talking about. So I'm not talking about this honest, faithful evaluation that strips away bad to discover and build a healthier and stronger relationship with God in Christ and his bride, the church. If that's your deconstruction journey, I I'm for you. I would love to pray for you and walk alongside you if, we, if you would welcome that. I'm talking about deconstruction that is code for leaving Christianity and abandoning the faith, abandoning Jesus. So I'm not talking about remodeling the home. I'm talking about tearing down the home to the foundation and moving to the woods, right? Like something totally different. And as we continue this morning, I actually think in your toolkit, Hebrews is quite possibly one of the best tools you have if you are walking alongside someone who's deconstructing because Hebrews is constantly answering the question, what could be better than Jesus? And the answer that the author of Hebrews gives over and over again is nothing. Nothing is better than Jesus. Nothing you're tempted to go find out there in the world outside of the household of God is better than Jesus, so stay. That, that's the invitation that Hebrews gives us. And um, I think it's compelling and it's, it's a fantastic tool, not only for you to use as you walk alongside brothers and sisters who are going through seasons of doubt or deconstruction, but also for you to bolster your faith your devotion and your relationship with this Jesus. So that's what I will say is kind of coming up in Hebrews this morning. But, but this passage begins with this appeal to Jesus' superiority over Moses. And so a lot of y'all know if you've studied the Old Testament or read it or watched the Prince of Egypt, um, you know who Moses is, right? Moses is this, this chosen leader by God to lead the people of God out of slavery into the promised land of rest. That's Moses' task, and he does it really faithfully and wonderfully. It's in the book of Exodus where this takes place, but it can, his journey continues through um, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and, and Numbers. Um, and so this is who uh, the author of Hebrews is talking about and comparing Jesus to in chapter 3. So let's read again uh, chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. 
for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were being spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. So uh, one of the things I love about Hebrews is how plain language this is, right? Like we all understand this metaphor. The author is saying Moses is a faithful leader, a lover of God and his law, and he points to Jesus, but Moses is in the house of God. Moses is part of God's house. He's part of the God's people. Jesus is the faithful, glorious, greater son of God who's above the house, right? So we all are part of the house. Moses was one of us, a really faithful, wonderful one of us, but one of us nonetheless. He's part of God's house. And and the author says here, um, Jesus is not a servant in the house. He's son of God. And he built the house. The house was built through Christ. It's a wonderful illustration. And and I, I don't think it needs much unpacking, right? The house of God here is the people of God in the Old Testament. This people of God is the nation of Israel. But today, the people of God has expanded through Christ to include Jews that realize that Christ was the fulfillment of that old covenant, that old Testament, and therefore they enter into the new people of God through Jesus. And the people of God includes non-Jews, most of us who entered, who have come through and into the house of God through Christ as well. So Jesus in the gospel is gonna say what? Jew or Greek, there's one way into the people of God and it's through me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. Paul will double down on this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. All through Christ have come to become the people of God. For the nation of Israel in the Old Testament is now the church today. We are the people of God, the church global. All those who have come through faith in Christ are now the household of God. And so Jesus is better because he built that house. And the author of Hebrews is going to prove that claim by pointing us to an Old Testament song, Psalm 95, and an Old Testament story, Numbers 14 quite brilliantly. And the author, um, what the author does in quoting Psalm 95 is trifold brilliant. First, they take Psalm 95 and they explain what it meant when it was written as a song for the people of God in Israel. Then they take Psalm 95 and they apply it to the Jewish Christians who have left the faith or are leaving the faith to go back to Judaism. And that means also they're taking it for you today. So Psalm 95 is about the past. It was relevant to the Jewish Christians who were leaving their faith, and it's for us today. That's why the today in today, if you hear his voice, meant then, and it means today. Let's read Psalm 95 and see what is going on, because the author is going to, first of all, attribute this psalm to the Holy Spirit, to God himself, and he's going to say, this is for you today. It says this, verse 7, Therefore, the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I, God, was provoked with that generation and said they will always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. We don't have to wonder what events this psalm is talking about because the author of Hebrews in verse 15 tells us exactly the events that the author of Psalm 95 is talking about. It says this, verse 15, jump down a little bit. 
as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts in the rebellion. What rebellion? For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter his rest. Why? Because of unbelief. So the author of Hebrews is giving us a picture. They're explaining what does it mean to harden your heart? The author of Hebrews is going to say, let me show you Jewish Christians in your own story, in the story of your wandering people, what it means to harden your heart. Let's look at the rebellion. They're describing this scene after the Exodus. It's found in Numbers 14. You can turn there if you want. We're going to read some of this. At this point, right, the Israelites have been freed from slavery in Egypt. They have been freed from oppression in Egypt, and they have been um, marching toward the land that God had promised he would give them, this land of rest, this land of provision, milk, honey, peace. But we know, if, if you've studied this, that this journey was not easy. The, the Israelites backslide, they doubt, they, um, they rebel all along the way. They doubt God's goodness, they doubt God's provision for them, and ultimately they fail continuously kind of fail to believe that God has good things for them, and therefore they fail to believe that God is good. In chapter 13, we're going we're gonna to read Numbers 14 in a second, but in chapter 13, God is, has brought the Israelites onto the, the border of Canaan, which is the promised land. The Canaanites occupy the land, and God has said, that is your land, that is the land for my people, that is the land of rest and milk and honey and peace, and that is the land I'm about to give you. And so the Israelites are sitting there on the border, and in wisdom, the Israelites say, well, let's send some spies into Canaan, and they'll give a report. We can't see over there. We can't see what's going on. So let's, let's send some spies in. And the spies come back after 40 days. They spend 40 days looking, and they come back, and they, they first give this wonderful report. This, the land is everything God said it would be. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's, it's green. It's lush. It's got water and rivers, and it... It's, it's everything God said it would be. So they're excited, first of all. And, and, but then the second thing they report is that Canaan is filled with big soldiers. The Israelite spies say, compared to us, the, the soldiers of Canaan, are, they make us look like grasshoppers, is what the spies report. They report, man, Canaan's got a big army, and they're not only big in number, they're big guys. And this is the Israelite response in chapter 14. All the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron the priest. The whole congregation came to them and said, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or that we had died in this wilderness. Why is Yahweh bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our children will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go to Egypt? In fact, they said to one another, Let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. They, actually, they take the Lord's name in vain, right? They take Yahweh's name and say, why would God do this to us? Yahweh is going to kill us. After Yahweh has repeatedly said what? I will give you this land. I will provide for you. I will free you. I will dwell among you. Here they say, we curse God, we curse Moses, we curse Aaron. They've brought us to die. And God's response in verse 11 is this to Moses. How long will this people despise me? 
How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? And God says this in his anger. I will strike them with pestilence and disinherit them. And for you, Moses, I will make a greater nation mightier than them. Is God wrong in saying that? No, he's right and justly angry with their unbelief. They've disowned him. And God says, for that, I will strike them down. But Moses does something radically bold, in my opinion. (laughs) He tries to intercede, and he does so by telling God who God is. He takes God's character and reminds God of God's character. Listen to this um, in verse 17. Moses says this, And now... Please let the power of Yahweh be great as you have promised God, saying that you are, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving sin and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation. Please pardon the iniquity of this people according to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. And the Lord says this in response, I have pardoned them, but according to your word, Moses, but truly as I live, none of the men in the wilderness who have seen my glory shall enter the land that I swore to give to their fathers. They will not enter my rest, but I will not kill them. So that's the story of Moses in Psalm 95 and Numbers 14 and that we're being given. This is what Israelite Christians are being given as an example of what they're doing, right? It's amazing. The the author says, you Jewish Christians, when you say, I don't want to be be a Christian anymore, I want to leave Christ and kind of go back to the Jewish system, it's like, hey, hey, like church leaders, we're, we're being oppressed and killed and thrown in prison for believing in Jesus. We kind of miss the old days when the Jewish temple system in Rome, we had a good understanding, we had a good relationship, we didn't get in their business, they didn't get in our business, we were able to do our temple stuff, we kind of miss those days. And even if we don't, like it might be better to just die as part of the temple system than to be, be horribly oppressed, crucified upside down, burnt as Christians under Nero. It's a, it, this is a compelling point of application, right? In Numbers, um, God says, I've given them freedom and sign and sign after sign. And here again, they just don't believe me. And to the Israelites, he says, you will never enter my rest if you don't believe in me and believe that what I have for you is greater than going back. It's compelling in a lot of ways. And we're going to see next week about entering God's rest, like worked out in detail. But for now, the author is saying, don't harden your hearts like that. Jewish Christians, don't harden your hearts like that. They chose to grumble. They chose to, even with the signs of God, harden their hearts against Yahweh himself, their their liberator, and against Moses, his leader, and Aaron, their priest. They chose to harden their hearts towards belief, and we're told their bodies fell in the wilderness. They never reached the rest of God, the promised land, the land of true rest, and milk, and honey, and life, and water, and dwelling among the presence of God. They never got there. And amazingly, this applies to Christians today who are deconstructing in the way that I described, who have abandoned truth in Jesus altogether. They're hardening their hearts and deconstructing out of belief, and they will never enter rest. They'll never enter true rest unless they find the rest given in Jesus. And look, I get it. Like the way of the world right now is tempting. It's tempting to live without moral obligation. It's tempting to live with freedom 
in promiscuity or seemingly freedom, right? To live without obligation to God or community, to live for self-gain, to live in comfort away from having to have awkward or hard conversations or feel like you're being told you're stupid for what we believe in. Like, those things are tempting. However, However, I think one thing we're supposed to learn from Hebrews 3 is that yearning to deconstruct and deconstruct and abandon Christ for the way of the world is no better than the freed slave who cries out, it's better that I die a slave than be here suffering in the way I am. It's better that I would die in the world than be here with God. In Exodus um, 32, one of the first mistakes that the Israelites make after they are freed from slavery in Egypt is that um, they fashion for themselves this golden cow to worship and they, because they can't really understand what Moses is doing up on Sinai talking with God. So they make this cow and they start to worship this calf as this golden God who redeemed them from Egypt. And Moses, uh, once again, or maybe for the first time since being freed from Egypt, has to intercede for the Israelites. And when he does, God says this, okay, well, you can keep going to the, you can go through the wilderness and get to the promised land, but I will not, I, God, will not go with you. That's what happens in Exodus 32. And Moses' response is, oh, God, if, if you're not going to go with us to the promised land, we don't want to go. We don't want to go. We will not go to the promised land. Hey, Moses, if it's fruitful, if it's flowing with milk and honey, if it stops our wandering and tent dwelling, allows us to establish a nation and an army and leaders and kings eventually, I don't care how wonderful it is, if you are not among us, God, we will not go. Because Moses knows that rest is not defined by a place, it's defined by a person. Moses knows that God's presence enables them to rest, not the place of rest that's symbolically pointing to Christ as rest. And the same is true today, right? Don't fall for the lie that the world promises that whatever promised land the world holds out to you is better than being with Jesus. Don't fall for that lie that it's better to be out there than within the presence of Jesus, right? It's better to have Jesus and suffer than to prosper on earth without him. It's better to have Jesus and weep than to have joy on earth without him. It's better to have Jesus and lose friends than to have peace with everyone but not have Jesus. It's better to have his presence So the author of Hebrews tells us, do not harden your hearts. Israelites, don't harden your hearts in unbelief and yearn for slavery and death in Egypt. Jewish Christians, don't harden your hearts in unbelief and yearn for slavery and death in a moral system of Judaism, which has been fulfilled in Christ. And Christians, don't harden your hearts in unbelief and deconstruct away from Christ and his presence. Don't yearn for the things of the world because in so doing, you yearn for slavery and death, and the absence of the presence of the Savior. Hmm. So what should we do? What should we do? If we want to avoid our hearts becoming hard, what is the cure? What is the remedy? How do we avoid the hardened heart that leads to unbelief, to slavery and sin, and ultimately death? Well, the author of Hebrews gives us this remedy, and we skip these verses, but let's go back 12 through 14. They say this, 
Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Instead, exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you might be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ if we hold to our confidence till the end. So first, we're instructed to take care because our evil and unbelieving hearts are desiring to lead us away from the living God. The prophet Jeremiah and Jesus both tell us that the heart of our flesh and its desires are evil. So the author says, don't just follow your heart. Don't just follow your heart, if it, especially if it will pull you away from God himself in Christ. Don't follow your heart away from God's presence. Test your desires. And here's a defense of against hardening our hearts. He says this, exhort one another daily, every day that's called today, which happens to be every day, every day that's called today, exhort one another so we wouldn't be hardened by sin. The instruction is simple and radical, and it's this, be in community. You can't, we're really bad at exhorting ourselves every day, right? I, I know my mental head, it, it largely more condemns myself than exhorts myself. We need each other to exhort one another, to encourage one another, to love one another, to remind each other of truth. So in your parishes, over dinners, at coffee shops, on Sunday mornings like this, we should remind each other of the truth of Jesus, remind each other that his presence is better than anything the world would offer, remind each other that he knows us. We can't be more known than we are now or more loved than we are now by Jesus. There is no promised land out there that's devoid of him not in any government, not in any career, not in any relationship. Anything without his presence is not rest. Why and how can we do this? The author says, because we share in Christ. We, the church, we are one. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We hold together in confidence in who Jesus is and what he has done. How are we in Christ? How do we share in Christ? This is the gospel. And it's it's what the author of Hebrews wants us to remember and remind each other. It's who we are to remember that Jesus is, that he's superior even to Moses. And so when the Israelites grumble and vocalize their rebellion against God, that they want to return and die in Egypt instead of trusting in Yahweh that the promised land will be their land, Moses reminds God by, um, by stepping in as a mediator, right? Like, God would have been just in pouring out his wrath on this unbelieving nation who has taken his name in vain once again by not, unbelieving, by, by not believing him. The reason he doesn't do that is because Moses mediates. Moses mediates between the sinful people and God, and Moses is a really good mediator, right? Like, by appealing to God's, it's almost like a masterful legal technique, and I'm not saying he was being uh, malicious in this. He, he just appeals to God's character. He says, God, you would be just in pouring out your wrath on this unbelieving people, yet you have said that you are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. So I appeal to you to be who you are. God doesn't change his mind. He acts in accordance with who he is. But God wants to invite Moses to be a mediator because Moses is going to point to a better mediator. When Moses mediates, God's response is to relent wrath. But you'll notice in Moses' case, Moses never talks about the people. 
He doesn't say, God, they've, remember other times they've been kind of faithful and remember like, like they've tried and remember they've, they've been really, you know, this is a weak point, but they, before that they were really doing well for a while and maybe they'll get back on track. Moses doesn't talk about the people at all. He just says, God, be who you are and don't pour out your wrath on the people. Would you be who you are? And God says, of course I will be. I will be who I am. So God does not save the Israelites because they upheld the law. The law has condemned them to death. They failed to love the Lord their God with all their heart. They failed to trust him. They failed to live for him. They cursed Moses and Aaron, and they despised what Yahweh had done. So they failed to uphold the law, but God saves them, not because of their works, but because Moses mediates for them his grace. So the people are not destroyed, but there are still repercussions. They are not allowed to enter the land of rest. They are not allowed to enter the land of sustenance. So Moses is a really good mediator, but he's not a perfect mediator, right? Moses is able to mediate relenting wrath, but he can't also mediate this navigation into the land of God's rest. Instead, the people are barred from entering. We need, it turns out, a better mediator. And that's who the author of Hebrews wants us to see that Jesus is. Jesus lives a perfect life of perfect righteousness, completely free from sin. In his death and resurrection, that perfect life is applied to those who have faith in him now, who believe that they would be saved through him. And he lives this perfect life, but he also dies a sacrificial death, dealing with God's wrath that's reserved for those who fail to uphold his law. And in his resurrection, that payment for God's wrath is counted for your sin and my sin, those who believe. And Jesus did this willingly, right? Jesus was not forced into this. Before the foundation of the earth, Jesus said, that is my people and I will do this. Therefore, we who are in Christ are found not guilty. Our transitions are cleared. And not only that, his righteousness is applied to us as our righteousness. So Jesus is a much better mediator than Moses, who's a pretty good mediator. <laughs> he mediates grace because he lives under the perfect law and he takes wrath reserved for us on the cross, satisfying justice. And next week, you're gonna see how he guides us into the promised land in a way that the Israelites could never be guided into. And as the Psalm says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Do not abandon him. Do not yearn to go back to slavery and sin. Do not yearn for a false land of rest when he, Jesus, by his blood and body have purchased us entry into the true land of rest. We who are in Christ are in the promised land. Don't go astray in your hearts. Encourage one another. The instruction is clear. Take care. Don't harden your heart. Don't leave this Jesus. We have to believe and remind one another that Jesus is better than anything the world could offer, offer us. There's, there's no return to life before that gives rest. It's not better to have the world and not have Jesus. You may be in a season of wandering in the wilderness. You may be in a season of deconstruction, about finding out what's true from separating that from what's not true about who Jesus is and what he has said. If you are, don't do it alone, the author of Hebrews warns us. Don't do it alone. Take care. Encourage each other today. Be prayed for. Be encouraged. Be pointed to his word. Remember his truth. Remember he mediated. 
hold fast to the confidence we have in his word by his spirit and his body and blood, which we feast on in remembrance of who he is and what he has done and in the new covenant that he has mediated for us, the grace that he has purchased for us. When we come to the Lord's table, we hold fast to this in remembrance of him who is our righteousness, our mediator, and our rest. Let's pray.